This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by the fine gentleman of Bird Campbell, PA. Bird Campbell means business. Hello, Duke fans, and welcome to episode 116 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. It is late Wednesday night, March 28th. 2018. Uh, we are recording this evening after the conclusion of the annual Duke recruiting show. I, I Sorry, the McDonald's All-American game, the biggest event in the high school basketball showcase. And we thought we weren't going to be recording again for at least a few more days, but there's been a whole slew of developments in the Duke basketball world. So we're back And before we get into all that, let's introduce ourselves as usual. I am your host for this episode, Sam Klein, coming to you from Denver. I am joined, as usual, by Donald Wine in Washington, D.C. Good evening, Donald. I know you watched the game. How you doing? Uh, I'm doing good. It was a good game to watch. I got a lot of notes, and uh, I think we should just get right into it once we bring in the other guy that's on the podcast. All right, and that other guy is Jason Evans in Atlanta. Jason, good evening, sir. You were at uh, the McDonald's All-American practices this week doing some behind-the-scenes stuff for us, so hopefully we'll get into a little bit of that, yes? Yeah, that's the plan, and... um... (laughs) Well, I'm I'm just gonna say it. I'm 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 a little drunk. I'm kind of drunk. Uh, <laughs> I, Y'all, uh, if you weren't ready for this, we're about to do an episode of this oh show, like, a whole bunch of topics, and Jason Evans might not be totally with us, but we're gonna do our best because we got stuff to talk about, right? We did. Yes. Yeah. I'm, I, so so the people know, uh, and you can already tell. It's like I'm I'm not uh, I'm not able to form my sentences as well as as I usually do. Um, so uh, my my congregation, the temple that I belong to, uh, does um, what we call a a men's seder. Passover is coming up this weekend, and so always a couple days before seder, before Passover. Sorry, we do this event where um, uh, a bunch of the guys, a bunch of the men in the congregation get together, and we we pretend. Don't tell our wives. We pretend like it's this religious thing, but what we really do is drink a lot of scotch. <laughs> And we have steaks. So I had I had a delicious filet for dinner tonight and a lot of scotch. Now, Jason, right, so you, you showed us a bunch of pictures of what you were drinking, but you didn't show us the steak. No, I didn't I, see I, the steak. I didn't take a picture of the steak. Sorry. I, okay. I only t- we will we will do our best to include uh, whatever photos Jason sent us in the thread for the show. So oh check God. out the check out the thread on the DVR. <laughs> oh my God. When you uh, once you've listened to this episode, or while you're listening, maybe enjoy it with a nice with a nice glass of Lagavulin or whatever whatever you fancy. Anyway, we'll start off with the first item, guys. The biggest news of the week, the most shocking news: Marvin Bagley has declared for the NBA draft. Jason, <laughs> Jason, Jason, your reaction? I, I, yeah, stunning. I, I think I said to you guys on the podcast. A friend of mine sent me a message when this happened. They said. In other news, grass is green and water is wet. Um, and and Donald, your reaction, Marvin Bagley, go into the draft. Yep, that was going to happen. Okay, we're done with that. Moving on. <laughs> the real you know, biggest should, breaking news. Actually, wait, wait. We should we should also mention Wendell Carter hasn't officially declared, but his mom declared for him. 
Yeah, and we're we're actually going to get into that. So we'll we'll talk about the article that quoted Wendell Carter's mom extensively. I do want to start though with the most breaking news. We do want to get to the McDonald's All American game, but I want to start with the uh, news out of Durham and simultaneously out of Pittsburgh. There's been uh, a fair amount of staff turnover as it relates to the Duke program. So Jeff Capel, who for a few years now has been the associate head coach at Duke is the new head coach of the Pittsburgh Panthers men's basketball team. Of course, they play in the ACC. He becomes the first Mike Krzyzewski assistant to leave for an in-conference rival. Obviously, Duke plays every year against Notre Dame and Mike Bray and uh, against a good friend of Mike Krzyzewski's, Jim Beheim. Neither of those guys were in those jobs when their teams or those there, they were both in those jobs when their teams joined the ACC. So Capel's the first one to leave for an in-conference team. And at the same time, John Shire and Nate James, who have both been assistants for a few years now, have been elevated to the role of associate head coach, Capel's old role. So it's similar sort of to how Steve Wojciechowski and Chris Collins both took over the associate head coach's role in 2008 after Johnny Dawkins left for Stanford. So there's there's a lot to get to about this, but we speculate a lot around here and all over sort of the college basketball internet about Coach K's retirement plan and who might succeed him. And for a few years now, especially since the since Duke's been on this this great run of recruiting, Jeff Capel has been high on that list of potential successors, at least among those who sort of follow this thing due mostly to his being attributed with a lot of the credit for Duke's resurgence in in the recruiting world. And also, I think because the last presumed heir to the throne, Johnny Dawkins, hasn't fared so well in his head coaching time. He was let go at Stanford. Now he's at UCF. So I want to start with Donald. I'll ask you, what do you think about this move for Jeff Capel and what it means for Duke and what it means for Pittsburgh? Well, honestly, I was shocked to hear that he was the guy, you know, a couple of days ago, there were uh, rumors that were uh, pointed at John Shire being the guy that Pitt was targeting. And there were conflicting reports about the veracity of those rumors. Turns out that Pitt was in Durham, but they were talking to a different guy. It was Jeff Capel. Now, I, th- I think it's a big loss for Duke, but let's start out with this. It is a huge hire for Pitt. They get a coach that has experience uh, in a mid-major program in VCU. He coached at Oklahoma in a power conference in the Big 12. I think he's going to do a great job putting that program back together up there. Uh, and I think you uh, – I don't know if you saw this during the McDonald's All-American game, but it was announced that Chris Carwell will be returning to the Duke staff to replace uh, Jeff Capel. He won't be an associate head coach, but he'll be under uh, the aforementioned uh, John Shire and Nate James. So I think we have our, our staff – put back together uh, at least uh, for the time being, you know, I, I think the thing about it, you know, Jeff Capel in our eyes, and, and obviously we're not in deep of the program, but we follow it very closely. He had become the guy that coach K had relied on the most uh, while he was here. He was the associate head coach. Whenever coach K had health issues and couldn't coach Jeff Capel was the guy. It was clear that he was doing. And a that, lot was under the was it, that? It, that it was often that coach K, I mean, like, in each it's of been past- once a year at least, it, yeah. you know, one game or, or a stint of games like when he had that surgery uh, last season. Um, but he he has been the guy. You know, there was never a, a question about who was going to take over if Coach was sick or, and, and could not coach. 
Um, and, and when it comes to recruiting front, a lot of people thought that he was one of the pe- main people at the forefront of these of this recruiting surge that we've had over the last couple of years. But one thing that I will note, and this is not a slight on Jeff Capel because I think you know this staff will obviously very miss him dearly. He's going to be back in Cameron, uh, or at least facing Duke every year as the pit coach. This machine continues. You know, a lot of people thought years ago when uh, Chris Collins left for Northwestern, then Wojo went to Marquette, that our recruiting can keep up. But it's only gotten better. And it sounds like, uh, judging by uh, uh, Jason's great work um, with uh, the interviews that he had with the guys at the McDonald's on American game, we'll get to that in a second, that John Shire has recently helped out with some of the big-time recruits. So maybe this just means that he can pick up the slack Nate James has been around for quite a while. He could pick up some of the slack. And no one, if he is elevated to an, associate, to an assistant coach, he would be able to recruit. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. I, no, no, no. My, my bet is, just really quick, I think the fact that they've hired Carowell tells you what's happening with Nolan Smith, that Nolan Smith is going to follow um, Jeff Capel to, to Pittsburgh. I think Nolan Smith is going to get a prominent position on the Pittsburgh Although that's staff. Not, that's not confirmed yet or anything that's it's not, not confirmed yet yeah. it's not announced let, let, yet let's but, be clear but why, why why would there's there but guys let's think about it there's no reason for them to hire carowell carowell was an assistant coach at marquette with wojo there's mm-hmm. no reason for him to leave an assistant coaching job at marquette unless he's becoming an assistant coach at duke and the ncaa doesn't allow you to have an unlimited number of assistant coaches you're there's three spots there and we now know those three guys nolan smith didn't leave an assistant coaching job at Duke. Um, uh, I mean, he was, he wasn't an official assistant. He was like right behind that, right. you know, sort of a, a you know, a, an advanced manager kind of, or not quite assistant position that the Duke has, you know, created. There's no way Nolan Smith left that position to do nothing. He, he, he is clearly, I think it hasn't been announced, but I'll be shocked if he doesn't follow uh, Jeff Capel to Pittsburgh. And I think that's a that would be a good move for Nolan as well to get, you know, basically that's a promotion for him to get that experience. But yeah. in short, but, but but by the way, Donald, your point, I think I think Carowell will be a great recruiting assistant, the same way you were mentioning that Nolan Smith could be. I think he, you know, they can, they can play that same role very very nicely. Yeah, and he did that a little bit when he was here before he left for, uh, uh for Marquette. But in short, I think while Jeff Capel leaves a big hole we have guys to fill that hole. And I think this show will go on is, and I think the interesting part of this move, the most interesting part is that for years when, when assistants left Duke to take on a head coaching role, it was far away from the ACC. This is the first time as, as, as uh, Sam noted that we have uh, a coach leaving for an in-conference school. Um, and, and that would have that, you know, storyline and that plot line every single time they play so this show will go on uh, i think that plot line will be interesting and obviously for capel i think is a great move for him personally and i wish him the very best except for obviously the one two or three times a year that we play him hey let, let me jump in i think the most interesting thing here is not what it says about jeff capel it's what it says about mike shashevsky because oh, he here yeah he, he uh, because in. i i i there's no way to know for certain, but the the presumption among just about everyone, including people who are close to the program and close to the assistant coaches, was that Capel was the coach in waiting. Um, that you know, not that Capel had been promised the job, but it really looked like 
and and no one can be promised the job, but it really looked like Capel was going to be the next head coach at Duke when Mike Krzyzewski, who is 71 years old, uh, the presumption was when, when Coach K stepped down that Capel was going to immediately step into that job. And the fact that Capel left says to me there are only two possibilities. Actually, I'll revise it. There are three possible reasons why he could leave. Reason number one, Coach K says to him, you know what? You, you need to go someplace else to get more experience to prove yourself as a head coach before we give you the job. Before We can't just hand you the job. Which, which I think would be a weird excuse because he has been a head coach before at the high Twice. major level. Exactly. He right. was at Oklahoma. Exactly. I completely agree with you. That's why I originally said two, and then I revised it to three. That one that I just said first was my third reason. I don't think that's much of a reason. So the, the second of the possible reasons there is that Coach K said to him, you know what? I think I'm going to be here for a while. I, I'm not planning on leaving anytime soon. And if you got an opportunity to go sculpt your own program and do your own thing, go ahead and do that because I'm going to be here for at least four or five more years. You at know, least, this, this, this kind of analogy, it's like a, it's, it's like a boxer. You know, sometimes boxers only fight once, twice a year, if that. And you always talk about sparring sessions, and, and that's what kind of being an assistant coach and having spot duty as, a, as an interim head coach does. But sometimes a coach needs to get back out there and, and as they say, keep, keep, his, keep, his, keep his guns quick, you know? So when he's, set, when he's doing this, and, and that's the thing, when Pitt comes around and he's, they're probably, the rumors are they're talking to, to John Shire, Capel was probably like, hey, if there's an opportunity to be a part of a big-time program at a big-time conference, it's not coming anytime soon, you know, bigger than being in the ACC and competing at Pitt. So uh, I think that's kind of probably played a little bit into that too. Yeah, and, and let, me, let me really quickly get to my, you know, reason number three that I could imagine for, for Jeff Capel leaving. Reason number three would be Capel knew he was being courted by Pitt, maybe by other jobs as well, as he has been in the past. He was rumored, you know, to be connected to the Georgia Tech job. He was supposedly going to be connected perhaps to the Arizona State job before Bobby Hurley took that one. Um, and, and I wonder if Capel went to Coach K and said, hey, am I, am I going to be, you know, the next guy? Is, is this, you know, sort of a sure thing that I'm your successor? And Coach K said, eh, no, not really. You know, don't know. We have no idea yet. And Capel, you know, because he didn't get that kind of assurance, didn't get the kind of word that, yeah, it's going to be yours, that that's why he decided to leave. I'm surprised, though, given the amount of attention that Capel has gotten the last couple of years as a head coach for just about any high major program, that he would want to take a job in the ACC and one that's going to be so hard as the as the one at Pittsburgh will be with the massive rebuild that they have ahead of them. I'm not saying that he's he's you know not qualified for it not that he i don't think he'll do a good job because i do think he'll be successful there just that if i was him i'm in i'm in a great situation in the same way that you know Steve Wojciechowski and Chris Collins it seemed like waited around for their best opportunities and i think they both took really good opportunities in major conferences away from the ACC so in that sense i'm a little surprised i'm also um, a little surprised from um, from the perspective that uh, oh my god, where did my thought just go? <laughs> well, hey, Sam, let me let and, me ask and, you a question. Who's drunk, and, and who's who's drunk now? Is the drunk one. Who's drunk Sorry. now? Well, yeah, let me seriously. ask you a question real quick. I had one beer before we started. I will 
I'm the sober one. How's how did this happen? Hold on. I need to get a drink for this. But anyway, no, my question is coaching is a carousel, as we all know. And I think here's the question. Dan Hurley was very was rumored to be the front runner and and the the first choice for Pitt. And he ended up going to UConn. If Dan Hurley goes to Pitt and UConn comes after Jeff Capel, do you think Jeff Capel leaves? Because I don't no, think he does. No, no, no way. I, Pittsburgh is a, Pittsburgh is a much better job than UConn at this point. Yeah, I, I'm I surprised. Agree. I'm surprised that Dan Hurley made that choice. The only thing that I guess stands out to me is that UConn is a little bit closer to his home base. He he is a New Jersey guy. He's a Northeast guy. Pittsburgh isn't that far from those places, but in terms of of culture, is wildly different than being. It, it in sounded like New his Jersey. family preferred Connecticut over yeah. Pittsburgh. It's still, you know, Connecticut's still in the sort of greater New York tri-state area. Pittsburgh mm-hmm. is not. Pittsburgh is, is you know, all the way on the other side of Pennsylvania and is in Appalachia, where, well, and, where UConn and, is certainly not. And it's worth noting that no one knows better than Jeff Capel how quickly you can turn around a difficult situation because Capel, you know, has been at the, as we've mentioned, has been at the helm of Duke's recruiting the past few years, and it has been put together a new team every single season because of Duke being one and done. So he knows how quickly you can remake a team and remake it pretty good. You know, Dan, Danny Hurley. Uh, yeah. Dan, Danny Hurley. It, it's a slow build. You know, it, it, that's what Danny Hurley has done for the most part at, at Rhode Island um, and, and in other head coaching jobs. So, uh, you know, for someone to have the vision to look at Pitt, that, that was a program that looked like it was in huge, huge trouble and had a terrible, terrible season and say, oh, no, I can happen there quickly. I can see Capel having that vision more than Hurley. Not that there's anything wrong with, you know, however you want to construct your team. But uh, I, I think that could maybe explain a little bit of as well. And I, uh, now I remembered. I wanted to go back to the, the situation at, at Duke where Capel's role, like I said, is being filled by Nate James and John Shire. We haven't heard much, I think, in Nate James's time on the bench about exactly, you know, what, what his strengths are as an assistant coach. I assume, based on his, based on his time at Duke as a player, that you know he's he's coaching the guys on on I guess like how to be tough and how to be, you know, part of the program and engaged, even if they're not the stars of the team. But we don't really hear much about it. I assume it's much more of a behind the scenes thing. We don't even really see him much in the Duke Blue Planet uh, coverage. John Shire we hear a lot about as, as the recruiting guru. Like Donald said, he, he apparently is, is a wizard at talking to high school kids and well, convincing and, and, them to, to come uh, to Duke, yeah. I was going to say, you know, when Coach K doesn't do the halftime interviews, for the most part, it seems like Shire is the guy who does the halftime interviews. Shire is the guy who has the rival podcast. He has the podcast that he does during the summer. Let, let me ask you, Sam. I know you're well, the host, but let me put the question to you. Are you yeah. surprised that they were elevated equally? Because I, if you'd said to me, someone's going to become the associate head coach, I would have said Shire. I would not have said Shire and James. My thought, and this is what I was getting to, is that I set you up neither of them – Neither of them, yeah, neither of them is sort of fully set up for the assistant executive role that Capel was in. Because let's face it, Jeff Capel as an assistant, from our perspective, from from the outside looking at the program, Jeff Capel was doing a lot more as a head coach than most, you know, prime assistant head coaches are probably doing around the country. Right? He's he's had to be the the 
head coach of the team for at least one game. I think each of the last three years, he handles a lot of that duty. You know, Shire does the halftime interviews. Capel does some of them as well. Capel is a, is a pretty visible face of the program, more so, I think, than you see at other programs. I'm not sure that John Shire, being a little on the younger side, he's only 31, or Nate James, who is just not that public of a guy, we don't see him that often. I don't think either of them is fully ready to step into the mostly executive role of being Coach K's right-hand man. And so they both sort of need to do it in the absence of either of them having enough experience at it. If this were a few years from now, if John Shire was a little older, then it would surprise me. Then I would think that Shire was sort of ready for it. Or if Nate James was was more out there and we we knew more about him and we heard from him more, either way, it, it would make more sense. So that that was kind of the surprising thing for me is that neither of them struck me as ready to to take over that job because Coach K, I think, in recent years has probably ceded some of the leadership of the program to his assistants. More so, again, than than most head coaches do because they are not all-time greats who have who also have USA basketball on the side and also have all the other things that Coach K does. So in that sense, I'm a little surprised that he couldn't find another guy to bring in who was more experienced. At the same time, it tells me that he has a lot of confidence in them together in the way that he had in Chris Collins and Steve Wojciechowski 10 years ago to put them both in that role. And Wojciechowski, I was looking this up earlier, Wojo was the same age then when he got promoted to associate head coach as Shire is now. So it's not like Shire is so young for that job. And like Donald mentioned up at the top, Shire was being rumored for the pit job until it seemed like they they hired Capel yesterday. Um, so so there is some confidence in Shire. I do we we have a, a number of other things to cover. So I think we've we've gone through the coaching stuff. Is there anything else you guys wanted to add on this topic, or can we get on? to the McDonald's All-American game. Let's talk about some uh, some athletes. I love it. I love it. Okay. So I'm going to start with Jason because he saw the recruits first. So on Tuesday, was it Jason or Monday? It was the, Tuesday. Uh, Tuesday. At the Mickey D's practice. So Tuesday, Jason was at McDonald's All-American practice with a press pass uh, courtesy of SB Nation and, and Duke Basketball Report, um, which is extremely cool. I know that DBR is posting some of the videos that you took, um, but you got a chance to see all of our recruits. So that's Trey Jones, the point guard, who's the younger brother of Tyus Jones. And then we have three big wings in Cam Reddish and Gatorade Player of the Year, RJ Barrett, and high-flying Zion Williamson, who won the dunk contest, as well as big man, E.J. Montgomery, who is not committed to Duke, but is still on Duke's recruiting radar, and Duke is still after him pretty hard. They're all five-star guys. They're all expected to make big impacts next year in college basketball. So, Jason, I want to ask you first, what did you see from your time at the practices this week from any of the guys? And, and feel free to start wherever you want. Uh, so the the place where I start, and I, I wrote about this in, in the article that got posted on the main page, main page of the DBR, you have to start with the four of them as a collective, and I I can't convey enough. I tried to I tried to put it in the stuff I wrote. I can't convey enough to people how close these four guys are, and it it's unusual because I'm I, you know I'm in that gym 
Uh, it's a huge gym. It's the Atlanta Hawks practice gym. Um, there are two full courts that are there. Uh, the whole thing is surrounded by NBA scouts. Uh, they were uh, they were just uh, literally it was you know a hundred plus people surrounding these two courts, um, and and the immediate takeaway that I had from watching our guys was that anytime they could they were together, um, and it wasn't just like they were together because they all knew they were Duke guys and they're supposed to stand together. Like they were talking, they were laughing, they were shooting with each other. They'd play a little bit of one-on-one with each other. When, when their teams were doing drills, if it was a one-on-one drill, they drilled against each other. If it was a two-on-two drill, they were in the two. If it was a three-on-three drill, they were in the three going against someone else. They, they always lined up right next to each other. And then when the, the East and the West would come together, all four of them would be because there were two of them on the east and two of them on the west. Uh, all four of them would come together, a- and I asked them about it. I, you know, I got a chance to interview these guys and talk to each one of them for several minutes. And with each one of them, I, I, I said, you know, I noticed you guys just seem to pal around, and they talked about how close they are. These guys have had a group text chain, a group chat that they've had together for almost a full year now before any of them had committed anywhere. The four of them had put together this group chat and they were talking all the time. And I am absolutely convinced, you can talk about what a great recruiter Coach K is and Jeff Capel helping him out and John Shire also played lead on some of the recruiting here. But I'm convinced that these four guys decided together, all four of them, that they wanted to play in the same place. Hey, Jason, the, and, the tech yeah. text chain was a, a very big topic of conversation during the actual game tonight. Uh, anytime they were interviewing any of the uh, Duke committed players, uh, they were talking about the text chain, and they even mentioned uh, someone asked uh, whether EJ Montgomery had been added to that text chain, and they said, not yet, but we're working on him. So I thought that was pretty funny. Right, and it's worth noting, by the way, that EJ Montgomery – goes to and played on the same high school team that R.J. Barrett is on. They both played at Monteverde Academy, which is one of the finest basketball programs in the country. Um, and you have to feel like, um, you know, Duke has a little bit of a leg up on E.J. Montgomery um, b- because he has such a good relationship with R.J. Barrett. And uh, through that, he's developing a really good relationship with the other guys on the Duke team. And I, I, I noticed, you know, more so than anyone else, um, on the McDonald's teams, it felt to me like EJ was hanging out with the Ford Duke guys um, uh, more than anyone else was. Uh, so a couple other really quick impressions that I had. Um, I'll start with Zion Williamson. I, <laughs> Zion Williamson's short. I mean, I don't know if you could see it, Donald. Did, did, did it stand out? Did he seem kind of short when you, when you watched him in the, in the McDonald's game? Honestly, no. Uh, and, and I think it's because I feel like a lot of these guys are, are uh, their height that's listed is be an inch or two higher than than actually is. So when they list him at six seven, six eight, he looked as tall as a lot of the players. And here's the thing: I took, I saw a picture of the four of of the guys together, and he was standing next to Reddish and Barrett, and he actually had an inch on them in the picture. Now I don't know if it's because someone was slouching, whatever, but no, it, it was a perspective. Th- he was on the end, and he was forward a little bit. It was a. Per- I saw the picture you're talking about. Yeah, it was a yeah. perspective thing. I'm telling you. I, I walked in that gym and, and all the guys were sort of lined up next to each other. They were doing like a, a, a walkthrough kind of thing. And so you could really, you know, I, 
I was at their level. It wasn't looking down on them because everything was ground level. There are no stands or anything like that. He's short. He's listed at 6'7". I've heard he measures 6'6". Six, six. I'm telling you, he's more like 6'5". But you know what? It does not matter because he so is... So Charles Barkley, right? Exactly. Charles, Charles Barkley is probably 6'4". Yeah, he was less than 6'4". And, and yeah. if you wanted to rebound against Charles Barkley, you couldn't. So And, and you can't against Zion Williamson either. It, playing against nothing but freaks, athletic freaks. I mean, because all these McDonald's All-American guys... Every single one of these guys is probably going to be in the NBA at some point. These are the kind of players that, uh, you know, immediately stand out at the college level. They are absolute studs and they are elite, elite athletes. They're freaks. Playing amongst the freaks, Zion Williamson is even more of a freak than everybody else. His ability to elevate, his physicality. I mean, the guy is, he's cut, he's chiseled, he's huge. It's it's really remarkable. And there were a couple times during the practice where he went up for lobs or or he got a lane to the basket and he elevated for dunks. And, you know, it takes a lot to impress an NBA scout who's used to watching James Harden and LeBron James and, and the very, very greatest athletes in the world. You could tell those NBA scouts were like, damn, did I just see that? I mean, Zion Williamson is impressive. And I'll tell you one other thing about him. I thought that this guy was going to be one of these kind of, you know, physical specimens who didn't have skills. I really liked his, his ball handling was good. He passed the ball very nicely and he was able to drift out to the perimeter and he, he was draining shots from the perimeter. Um, you know, I, I, this is not going to be a guy who's going to take four or five, six, three pointers a game at Duke, but I think he'll take a couple threes a game and, and I think he'll hit a pretty decent percentage of them. Um, and, and I really like the possibility of him and Cameron Reddish and R.J. Barrett being able to switch any position that they those guys their their quickness, their athleticism, their length, um, and their size I think allows any one of the three of those guys to cover just about any player on the floor. So our ability to switch next year is going to be really interesting and really impressive, provided um, they can learn how to play man-to-man defense. Right? I mean, yep. We, we hope that's the case, but <laughs> yes, we yeah. you. You never know. Uh, Jason, I, I did want to ask you before you got to the rest of the guys, and I had prompted you before the show, so you should be ready for this. The The thing that I'm worried about, looking at them kind of from a distance, because I haven't dug into the recruiting tapes too much. I've read the scouting reports. I've seen bits and pieces. My concern about this team next year is that it's going to feature these these three big players in Barrett, Reddish, and, and Williamson. And I, and I do want you to talk a little more about Barrett and Reddish, because I feel like for being the number one and number three players in the class, we haven't heard enough about them. But how do you think they all fit together on the offensive side of the ball? Because the concern is that, well, all of them are big wings who aren't elite shooters. So no one, none of them is going to be able to wait around on the wing while the other guys are working inside. And presumably, if the starting lineup next year is them with point guard Trey Jones and big man Marquise Bolden, who we also know is not able to step outside. Are you not concerned that we're going to have a crowded lane on offense next year? I think it's a little bit possible. I I will say that Cameron Reddish is a very good outside shooter. I think Cam is going to be able to, to hit, you know, hit pretty nicely from the outside. And in the McDonald's three point contest, he was one of the co-winners of the contest. He's, he's a very good outside shooter. 
Um, the, the reason I think these guys will succeed on offense and defense is because college basketball, and, and we saw it this year, Duke playing two bigs was unusual. College basketball is a guards game. It's a perimeter game. And having guys like this who can do a little bit of everything is the, that's the way college basketball is moving. I mean, most of the teams out there nowadays are playing four perimeter guys around one big guy. And I think that's what Duke is going to do last year. In fact, I think there's a possibility you'll see Duke play five perimeter guys at times next year. Um, th these guys are, are all big enough and athletic enough that they can go inside and rebound. I mean, it's not like we're talking perimeter guys who are 6'3", six, 6'4", six, you know, in, it's in not, red. It's not, it's not three Grayson Allens, right? It, it's exactly. more like... It's more like three Grant Jason Hill Tatum's. type guys. Yeah, yeah, Grant Hill, Jason Tatum type guys um, who, who are able to, to play multiple positions. They can rebound if you need them to rebound. They can step outside if you need them to step outside. And, and the, the other thing I was going to mention about these players is don't get hung up in thinking there are only two things that can be done in basketball. Don't get hung up in thinking you can either put the ball in the post the way we did to Carter and Bagley this year, or you can take a three-pointer the way we did with Grayson Allen and, um, and Gary Trent this year. Th there's another aspect to basketball, and that's a mid-range game. And these guys have spectacular, I mean spectacular mid-range game, especially R.J. Barrett. R.J. Barrett, I don't care what defense you're playing, you clog the lane, R.J. Barrett is going to shoot eight, ten-footers over you, around you. He, hits a, he has a beautiful fadeaway shot where he takes you into the post and then he shoots a little fadeaway the same way Kobe Bryant did, the same way Michael Jordan did. Kobe Bryant and Michael Jordan made a fortune off of back you down and then shoot a fadeaway because you can't block it. If they're fading away, there's no way you can get to it. And those guys were able to, to hit that shot again, 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 and again. And what I saw from practice from R.J. Barrett was a guy who's going to be able to do that same kind of thing. So the, the mid-range game these guys are going to be able to play, I think is going to be really impressive. And, uh, and the last thing I'll say about them is Cam Reddish and Trey Jones, but Cam Reddish especially, special, special passer. Um, finds the tiny, tiny windows that, that are hard to see and, and is able to see angles on the floor that other people are not. And that creates offense for you because it looks like a guy isn't open right up until the moment that Cam Reddish finds a way to get him the ball so that he has an easy, easy shot for two points. Um, and so I, Donald, I think that's how these guys are going to succeed. Donald, Jason, that was great. Donald, I want to get to you because you actually got to watch the McDonald's game. Does Jason's assessment hold up in real time? Not that the McDonald's game is the best indicator of the all-around game, but you do get kind of that all-star feel to it. What did you see there? How does it compare to what Jason was talking about with the skill sets of the different guys? And in particular, I do want to hear a little bit more about Trey Jones because Duke fans are probably going to maybe unfairly compare him to his brother and say, well, we're just getting Tyus Jones back. He's going to hit tons of big shots. He's going to play within himself. He's going to work well with other guards, all those things that, that Tyus Jones seemed immediately able to do. So why don't you start with Trey Jones but give me your general impressions from the game of the Duke guys. Well, you know, Jay Will said during the broadcast that Trey Jones was a cerebral player, and he really showed that tonight. 
Uh, I tend to agree with his assessment on there. So he really does a good job of seeing the floor. He can read a defense or, you know, this game lack thereof, because this really isn't a, a game about defense, although there were some defensive moments. Uh, but his way of, of, of it, he can always find the right way to attack a defense, whether it's going to the lane himself, doing a floater, shooting a three, making the right pass. He's very good in that regard. And I think that is where his game is going to really enhance everybody else's on the floor uh, in, in a way similar to Tyus Jones. And, and I don't want to start comparing him to his brother, but he, he brings a similar game. And I think that's why I feel so at ease with him handling the ball next year, because I, you know, we saw it with Tyus Jones and, and Trey Jones, you know, Tyus has said that Trey in a way, in a lot of different aspects is better than him. And if that's the case, then we're, we're in good hands next year. And I think that was the case tonight. Um, he can shoot, but like Jason said, him and Cameron Reddish are incredible passers. They combined for 17 assists in this game. And now, it, and it wasn't just like throwing the ball down the court to somebody who was waiting for a dunk. A lot of these were great passes, finding the open man, creating something in the lane and dishing off to somebody else for a three. They were really good at seeing the lane. Cameron Reddish, great handles, great stroke. Uh, he had 11 points, nine assists. Um, and here's the thing about him. We talked about, you, you asked about how to, how to fit these wings together uh, in a lineup. I think Cameron could be the glue guy in a way that, of the freshman at least, because he's not going to be the one that's going to ask for the ball all the time. He's not going to you know want to bring the ball up all the time. He's going to do what needs to be done. And I think he's good. He's very good at a lot of different things. And I think that's going to help rotations. It's going to help, especially, and this is where, is really going to be interesting when these guys are not all in a game together, because there's going to be times where Javin Delorier is going to play. Marquise Bolden is going to play. Alex O'Connell is going to play. When these guys are meshing in with each other, I think Cameron Reddish will still be able to be an excellent ball player with anybody that's on the court. And I think that is a really good dynamic to bring, especially for a guy who's, you know, he's one of the top three guys in the class and people don't really did not really talk about him. Can I, uh, can I can I try to make an unfair comparison for him? Go ahead. Tell me what you think. Because what you were just describing to me sounds like what Theo Pinson did for UNC this year, but with a lot more sort of physical gifts. Yes, he's a lot more athletic, um, and it has a lot more, uh, you know, of these skills, shooting and ball handling. But yes, a guy that's going to literally, you know, throw himself around if he needs to. If he needs to grab rebounds, he'll grab rebounds. If he needs to dish out ten assists. He'll do that. And I think that is really, really good about his game. RJ Barrett, he was one of the stars of the game. 26 points, 10 of 14 shooting. If his team had won, they lost by three. If his team had won, he probably would have been the most outstanding player of the game. Uh, he can finish with either hand. He, he, he was able to drive to the hole at will and was incredibly smooth. The funny part, when I think Jason, you, he talked about this but he, uh, when he spoke with you but he also did it on the broadcast. He mentioned that he tries to model his game after LeBron James and, and James Harden. But what I saw out there, the smoothness of his game is more suited to Kevin Durant. And, and I'm not saying that he has the, the length of Kevin Durant. He obviously doesn't. But the way that he can shoot a three, the way that he can drive a lane with ease, the way he, he, he got in ones like it was nothing. I mean, that sort of smoothness and calmness about his game is really, you know, really reminded me a lot of Kevin Durant. So I think we're in good hands there. 
lastly, Zion Williamson, he was a freak of nature tonight. The one concerning thing, but it, it, I think it should be fine uh, uh, over the thing. He he finished with eight points. He had to leave the game because he uh, tried to drive the lane late in the second half, and it appeared to dislocate his thumb. Now, I don't know if it was dislocated, but they showed on the replay and it bent backwards, so it might be uh, one of those things where it's jammed. We probably won't see him on the rest of the all-star circuits that they have uh, you know, over the next coming weeks. But um, the dude is a freak of nature. He's so powerful. And the one thing that I, I think is the, I have something I've never seen from a high school player of his caliber, I've never seen someone so powerful with his opposite hand. He routinely attack. He's a left-hander, but he routinely attacked from the right side. He could dunk with power from the right side. He has a soft touch with his right side, and he has the ability to create with either hand. So, those sort of things. When people are create, or, you know, comparing him to Charles Barkley, he said he wants to model his game after LeBron James. And the one thing LeBron James does very well is he is very good with his opposite hand. That's what Zion Williamson can do. And hopefully his thumb is better, gets better, and, and, and he doesn't need to really play these rest of these games. But it's clear that he's one of the top talents of this class. And him, Barrett, Reddish, and Trey Jones can do some absolute damage next year. Jason, did you have anything you wanted to finish off on the McDonald's All-American game or the, the recruiting situation for Duke for this high school class? No, not really. I, I, I do want to mention one thing uh, about EJ Montgomery. Um, who's the who's the, the the lone kid that Duke is still out there recruiting, um, and, and we mentioned him a little bit earlier. Uh, I I really liked what I saw from him at the practices. I think he'd be a great compliment to these guys because he's a little bit bigger. Um, he he's six nine, uh, almost six ten. Um, actually, Eugene Montgomery, he's listed at six ten. He's listed so, at seven foot. Yeah, is he? I, well, he didn't look seven foot to me. He probably looked. I'd say he's probably six ten. Okay, six ten, six eleven, whatever it may be. He's he's a little bit bigger than these other guys, and he's uh he's a little more comfortable in the lane playing, um you know playing sort of a a center kind of role. Uh, as a result, I think he'd be a really really nice fit with these these guys who are already here. Um, I I suspect, um that he hasn't announced anything because he's waiting to see. There there is you know I don't want to speculate too much, but. There is a little bit of talk that it's possible that Marquise Bolden will declare for the NBA draft. Um, you know, th- there was talk about that last year, and and he didn't have a, a good season. But that you know, doesn't the seem NBA... that doesn't seem like a good idea for him, does it? You know, so here's my question to you: If he knows he wants to go in the NBA, if he knows he wants to play pro basketball, do you really think that playing next year at Drew at Duke? is going to develop him more than playing next year uh, in the NBA, where he would be playing basketball full-time, where he would have no limits on the amount of practice he could put in, where, um, where th- I there's just a don't limit know. on the number of coaches. I mean, I just don't know that, that anyone is going to take, a draft sp- take him with one of their one or two draft picks because we just haven't seen him do that much on the court that looks... NBA ready. I think that the the key for the NBA draft is that teams want you to have some NBA ready skill. Like Gary Trent's going to go out this year, almost certainly, right? We we've we've talked about that here that we don't expect to see Gary Trent back at Duke next year. Gary Trent is not an elite athlete, I don't think, relative to the NBA. He's not a great on ball defender. He basically has one NBA skill, and that's shooting. And 
And that alone is going to possibly make him a first round pick. Otherwise, he's not ready for the NBA, but he's still going to go. I don't know what Marquise Bolden and, and and look at Trayvon Duval, who, again, is someone we know has a lot of ups and downs. He had a lot of issues this year, sort of gelling with the team on the court. I, I, I can't speak for off the court. But again, Duval gets into the lane like an NBA player. And honestly, I think that some of his problems this year were that the guys around him were not used to playing with a point guard who could move that quickly. And so they weren't able to react along with him. I think he's going to be happier in the NBA where his teammates are able to react quickly. That said, Duval, you know, didn't display any kind of shooting ability this year. We we've talked about that extensively. He has all kinds of holes in his game again, though. He's probably going to be a first round pick on account of his ability to drive the lane. I don't know what Marquise Bolden does makes him worth an NBA draft pick. He's long and he's big. But but, but lots of I, I think there are plenty of guys who are who are his size who can move uh, better than Sam he. Sam, let me I I don't know that it's going to happen. I'm not the one yeah. giving him advice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I sure. I probably would not tell him to do it. I'm merely saying it's a possibility. And yeah. but but I'll also say this if he doesn't go to the NBA draft. I think, you know, getting this back to where I started with it, I think EJ Montgomery looks at Duke and wonders a little bit about how much time he's going, he would be able to get if he came here. I don't know that EJ Montgomery sees himself. I was going to say, does he see himself as a, as a one and done type player? Cause I didn't get that impression from just from the recruiting rankings and the general chatter about him. I mean, he's, he's in, he's in the ballpark. He's not someone who's an, he's not top 10. He's not someone who's an automatic one and done, but in the right situation at the right kind of moment, I think he could be if, you know, if he blossoms nicely, I thought he played really well in the practice that I saw. He finished exceptionally well in the lane. Um, His touch in the paint um, was, was very, very good. Um, So I, I don't know that, if you're EJ Montgomery and you look at the Duke roster as it currently appears to be configured, you would wonder about where you're going to get playing time because you're going to be fighting Bolden and Delorier for playing time, you know, in the post. And, and, and maybe you would figure, oh, maybe I can get a little bit of time backing up Zion Williamson um, at the four at power forward. But, you know, that's not a that's not a formula where you go, oh, there's an easy 20 plus minutes a game for me there. Um, even though I think E.J. Montgomery is a very, very good player, and I think he would push Bolden and Delorier, and and it's not even impossible to imagine that he would start over them. Um, but but it's not a, a sure thing. Uh, I, I I wonder a little bit if maybe the reason we haven't heard anything from E.J. Montgomery is that he's waiting to hear about that. And then I'll tell you the other thing he may be waiting on. And I was almost going to do this as a parting shot, but you know, screw it. I'm going to do it now. Um, I, I'm going to make a prediction right now. You're going to laugh. Do you know who the coach of the year in college basketball is going to be next year? Because I do. that? It's going to be Bryce Drew of Vanderbilt. And the reason yeah. I think Bryce Drew. <laughs> okay. The re- hang on. Let's record. It is March 28th of 2018. At this time next year, we will be talking about Bryce Drew as one of the, the front runners for coach of the year in college basketball. And the reason why is because Bryce Drew is in the process of putting together as great as Duke's class is, Bryce Drew, I think, maybe in the process of putting together the second best recruiting class in the country. 
He already has a point guard named Darius Garland, who played very, very nicely in the McDonald's All-American game tonight. He's very yeah. yeah, really good point guard who's coming in as a freshman. He's got a, uh, a big man, a forward, Shim- Shimisola Shitu. Um, that is not a bad word. Um, <laughs> Uh, who's from Canada. He's actually good friends with R.J. Barrett. Um, he and R.J. were palling around a lot um, and talking about the fact that uh, Canadian basketball is uh, making big inroads. But but Shitu is is going to Vanderbilt. And I think Vanderbilt is the front runner for Romeo Langford, who was as impressive as anyone I saw at the practices. Incredible athlete. Um, uh, also looking at Kansas, also looking at Kentucky, but I really think Romeo Langford is going to go to Vanderbilt. And when Romeo Langford declares for Vanderbilt, I think that is going to entice EJ Montgomery to also go to Vandy. I really think there's a strong possibility that Vanderbilt is going to have four really, really good McDonald's All-Americans. That is more than Kentucky. That's more than Kansas. That's more than UNC. That's more than anyone except Duke that also has four. Um, and if Vandy does that, they're going to be a preseason top 10, top 15 team, and Bryce Drew will be early frontrunner for Coach of the Year. So, Wow, that is a, that, that's a big prediction. I, I do want to move on because we have a couple more things I, we need to discuss. The first being, and, and I'll, we'll make this quick, but we did want to highlight, there was an interesting article in The Undefeated this week by William Roden that, extensively quoted Wendell Carter's mother, who, if you've watched any Duke games this year, you you know who she is. She usually dresses rather garishly on the sideline and is cheering as hard as she can, sort of in the Chucky Okafor mold. Um, but Wendell Carter's mother was quoted as saying, among other things, she was talking about sort of the business of basketball and, and the whole one-and-done situation. Obviously, her son has long been assumed to be a one-and-done player. And she said, if you look at the pros and cons of this is about choosing college basketball, college basketball is a big con. From a business perspective, college is 100% risk and it's 100% negative to your business objective. It's not putting you in any better position for achieving your business objective, which is reaching the NBA. So it was kind of an interesting quote, I thought, and I, I do want to give it to you guys for your reactions too. Because Wendell Carter's mother, if you guys remember during Wendell's recruitment, was pushing him towards Harvard. There was a lot of a lot written about how much she liked the idea of him going to Harvard because of the education and the doors it would open. Ultimately, he picked Duke and and there was some sort of lingering disappointment from her, even though once he got to campus and was in the games and everything, she was fully engaged in it. So it seems a little bit like she's kind of talking out of two sides of her mouth because on the one hand, she valued the education. Duke isn't Harvard. We know that, but is, is pretty close when you consider the grand scheme of all the schools that Wendell Carter could have picked. And at the same time, seems like she really appreciates the, the business of basketball. And, and from our perspective, and we're all pretty biased because we're, we're Duke alums and, and we support the program doesn't seem like there's any any program you'd want to go to over Duke when it comes to the connections within the game of basketball. Mike Krzyzewski, of course, spent 10 years as the USA coach. He's pretty universally respected among NBA circles as a as a premier college coach. He has former players who who are playing on over half the teams in the league. There are coaches and GMs and scouts and and directors of basketball operations all over 
college and the NBA that are Duke alums or or former Coach K assistants. They're they're all over the place. So for the, the business of basketball, it seems to me like there's nowhere else you'd want to go than Duke. So it does seem a little weird from the perspective of the mother of a of a top recruit and and ultimately someone who's going to be a top pick that she would think that that going to college is 100% negative to your business objective. Donald, what did you think of Wendell Carter's mom's comments here? So there's two high I guess hypotheses that I have. The first one I and I want to read another quote that that's in the article and she talks about the NCAA and she goes it's a big con let the NCAA deal with those second round, second tier players and build their empire off them. Let the one and dones go and build their empires with their skill set. Now, I think the first thing is she's a mom. Like she ha- she does not give two craps about the NCAA. All she cares about is the welfare and the future business making of her son. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying that that's her job. She's she's looking out for Wendell. And I think she probably thinks that the NCAA, no matter what, has set up the system in, in, in the NBA in, in, in a way, too, because it's their rule. They've set up the system that allows them to profit off of her son for, you know, for a year or for how long when in any other sport or any or basically any other most other professions, I won't say all, but most of the professions, they don't have to go to high school to, to get to the top level of what they want to do. And I think the second thing, and this is the the probably the bigger hypothesis, you were talking about how she talked so highly about going to Harvard and how she wanted Wendell to go and the business of basketball. I think this quote about the NCAA leads me to believe what she's thinking about Harvard and that Harvard, and, and I think this goes through for a lot of majors, um, Harvard is further removed from that empire. No one goes to Harvard and talks about how they're making money off of these players. They're talking about the Blue Bloods when they talk about that. So maybe, maybe in a way, when she was talking about sending Wendell, wanting Wendell to go to Harvard, she wanted the education, but she also wanted the NCAA to be further removed from profitizing off. So of you're, 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 she's kind of separating the the basketball brand development from the education. Yeah, in a way. And it's like, look, like, again, when people talk about paying players, they're not talking about paying players at Colorado State football. They're not talking about paying players. Hey, 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 shout out, shout out. Go Rammies. Go Rammies. That's one of my my local (laughs) squads. They have great jerseys, by the way. But they do. They do. I like them a lot. They're not talking about paying those players. They're not talking about paying, you know, honestly, they're not even talking about paying like women's basketball at UConn. They're talking about, you know, Paying Duke basketball players, UNC basketball players, Alabama football players, Georgia football players, the people who are bringing in hundreds of millions of dollars, if not billions, for the NCAA. So I think she, in a way, is looped that in. And she's saying Harvard is well removed from that. And when I say go to Harvard and have an education and play ball, you're not really wrapped up in that system. Okay, I can I, I can get that. Uh, Jason, was there anything you wanted to add about uh, about Mrs. Carter's comments, or can we move to the next topic? <laughs> the only thing I would I would say very very quickly is she is honestly and brutally revealing the absolute absurdity of the current system, which is a system that forces kids who don't 
necessarily want to be playing for free, it forces them to play for free. And, mm -hmm. uh, and they shouldn't, they shouldn't be required to, um, they are, I, I mean, there's no question that Wendell Carter was physically, um, emotionally and skill wise ready to play for, for money. He was ready to play in the NBA and he should have been allowed to. And all she's really doing is she's saying this system's broken. It's not right. And someone please fix it. So other kids don't get stuck the way my son did. And she said, I had a, we had a great time at Duke. We loved Duke. It was a fabulous experience, but he should have been gotten paid. He should have gotten paid this year. And she's right. That's all yeah. I can say. Well, uh, I think it'll be interesting to revisit these comments as the months and years go on and we learn more about how the NBA and the NCAA sort of evolve with all the issues around college basketball. And, and, but, and by, by, the, by the way, you know, yeah. it feels like her comments were directed at the NCAA and that she is angry and frustrated at the NCAA. And a lot of people say, oh, the NCAA is what screwed up. I want to be clear about something. The NCAA is not the problem here. The problem is the NBA. The NCAA is merely adhering to the rules that the NBA has put in place. The NBA, and specifically the Players Association, are the ones who say you must spend a year in college before you declare for the draft. Or one year after high school. And right. you can do whatever you want with it. But exactly. for the time being... Shout out LiAngelo. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Shout out to LiAngelo Ball, who will not be doing that. Or, uh, or LaMelo. Yeah. P people know what I'm talking about, though. But it, it's... I want to be very clear. It is not the NCAA's fault. It is the fault of the NBA and the NBA Players Association who have made the rules about who can come into their league. And, yeah, and, and, and it, it, it's kind of interesting to think about if the NBA got rid of one and done and, and just let the players come out of high school, would there be such a groundswell about, about paying the players and, and changing the amateur model, do you think? I think that what you would see happen is there would be kids who, there will be kids who will say, I want to pay for, I want to play for money. And there'll be kids who say, I want to develop my skills in college. And, and they would, they would follow two completely separate tracks. Um, and there'd be some intermingling. You would see some of the college, some kids go to college and, and after one year say, oh, wow, you know what? I, I didn't realize how good I was. I'm ready for the NBA, but for the most part, I think you would see kids staying. I'm not even talking about there being a, you know, a two and through rule or a baseball model where you have to stay three years. I think that if you just made it open to everybody, the guys who really are ready and really want to get to the NBA quickly would get to the NBA immediately, and the guys who go to college would stay in college longer. It's an interesting thing to think about, and um, we'll, I'm sure <laughs> this will not be the last time we discuss the amateur model and and how it relates to Duke and college basketball. We'll have this conversation many more times before there's resolution. This episode of the Duke Basketball Report podcast is brought to you by the gentlemen of Bird Campbell PA with law offices in Florida and Texas a law firm started by Duke grads and former Duke roommates. Bird Campbell says, go to hell, Carolina, and let's go Duke.
So one more topic we've got tonight. If you don't remember, the last couple seasons we've done the stats prediction game here on the podcast. So uh, we come up with a list of categories that we're all going to pick winners in. And we do it right at the beginning of the season. And we forgot on Sunday in the midst of our sadness over the end of the season coming so suddenly to recap the stats game. So I went back through our notes and I've tallied the stats game and I want to quickly run down how we did. So, uh, and then at the end, I'll, I'll, everyone, if you're following along, you could certainly tally and figure out the winner, but I'll announce the winner at the end. So the first category was most points. We all, guys, in general, the stats game, we, we sort of underestimated the Marvin Bagley effect. I don't think we appreciated that Marvin Bagley was going to be statistically the greatest freshman that Duke has ever seen. So in the first category for most points, we all said that Grayson Allen was going to score the most points this year, but we instituted a tiebreaker. And um, so uh, I said that Wendell Carter was going to score the second most points. Donald said that Marvin Bagley was going to score the second most points. And Jason said that Gary Trent was going to score the second most points. So, Grayson Allen had 572 points. Marvin Bagley had 694 points this year. It's the second most points by an ACC freshman in ACC history. So Donald takes the first category. So congratulations to him. Yes. The, the second category was most rebounds. So I had Bagley and both Donald and Jason had Wendell Carter. And Bagley in four fewer games just barely edged out Carter. He was 366. Carter had 335. So I take number two. We'll move on to number three, which was block shots. Um, Donald and I both had Wendell Carter. Jason had Marvin Bagley, and Carter by far had the most. He had 76 block shots on the season. Bagley actually only had 29 and was just one ahead of Marquise Bolden. So um, so that one goes to goes to Sam and Donald. Uh, the fourth category was assist. We all said Trevon Duval and didn't even pick a backup. So he did actually lead the team in assists. So good work to all of us for identifying who the point guard was. I finally got one right. <laughs> yep. Um, we also, in, in the fifth category for most steals, we all also said Trevon Duval and it was Grayson Allen. So uh, we're done. But it was close. But it was kind of close. It was, it was kind of close, but, but Grayson won. So nobody gets a point there. Highest field goal percentage. Now here's an interesting one. The sixth category was highest field goal percentage, and it was minimum two attempts per game. That's where we set it at. So, excuse me. The By far, the winner in this category was Javin Delorier. Uh, but uh, I had Marvin Bagley. Donald had Marvin Bagley. Jason had Wendell Carter. Among those, th- among those two players, Marvin Bagley... Uh, Marvin Bagley had the had the highest number, although he was third on the team behind both Javin Delorier and Marquise Bolden, who both did attempt more than two shots per game. Uh, I, I I did double check that, so um, so it does go to to me and Donald. Uh, Bagley had wait y'all, Bagley, y'all wait y'all get points even though you came in third. Yeah, yeah, because yeah. because uh, it was it was among <laughs> the group. You'll you'll okay. I, th- I think you benefit from this at some point too. Um, highest three point. <laughs> Highest three-point percentage. Here's another one. Um, that uh, so so Donald's no going to take this. Yeah, Donald's no going to take Wendell this one because, Carter. He, because he got Gary Trent. Wendell Carter actually led the team. He he was hitting almost. Actually, no, sorry. Um, uh, Trent Alex was O'Connell third at forty. Trent was at, Trent was third at forty. Alex O'Connell had four hit forty-eight point nine percent of his threes, and we and we set this at minimum one half of a three-pointer per game. 
So Alex O'Connell was almost 50%. Carter was 41%. Grayson was all the way down at fifth on the team. He was 37%, and that's who Jason and I both took. So Donald, Donald got that one because he picked Gary Trent. Um, total wins. Guys, this was a bad one. <laughs> <laughs> so We got to so go over this one? So Duke, so Duke won 29 games this year. Last year, we did this also. Duke won 28 games, and it, it was a similar bloodbath. But uh, I was the one who had the most tempered expectations for the team because I only 30, picked 34. Donald 34. and Jason both picked 37. Um, oh, boy. So, yeah, so it, uh, so it was pretty close, um, but I, I took that category. True win, true road wins is another one that we got totally massacred in based on our, our blinding optimism. So Duke had six true road wins this year. I predicted nine, which is, again, the smallest number. Donald had 10. Jason had 11. So I'm going to take that category. <laughs> category number 10 was ACC was teams. What was I thinking? ACC teams in the tournament. Um, ACC teams in the tournament. We actually under uh, predicted this one. Donald picked seven. Jason and I both picked eight. Nine ACC teams made the tournament. So Jason and I both get a point uh, in that category for ACC teams. That was pretty good. Um, well done to the ACC and, and all those middling like nine and 11 seeds who got in. Oh, well, uh, uh, the, and, and Syracuse who made it to the Sweet 16 as an 11. And Exactly. Um, we had the, category number 11 was how many Blue Devils would score 25 points in a game. Um, so Jason and I both picked four, which was the right answer. Donald picked five. And I did go back through. Bagley did it seven times. Grayson Allen did it four times. Gary Trent did it twice. Wendell Carter only had one 25-point game, and it was that hilarious blowout against Evansville back in December. Uh, Duval never got to 25. So, so Jason and I both got that one. Donald did not. Uh, <laughs> here was another wasted category. I asked you guys to rank the four big men in terms of minutes played, and we all uh, got it right. Um, so it was, it was Marvin Bagley followed by, um, followed by Wendell Carter, then Javin Delorier and Marquise Bolden. And we were, we were all correct. So nobody gets, nobody gets any credit for that. Uh, category number 13, Jordan Goldwire's total minutes. So, um, I was, I, we, we had a lot of discussion at the beginning of the season about the guard rotation because we weren't sure among Goldwire and Alex O'Connell and Jordan Tucker, um, who was gonna who was gonna get minutes? Obviously, Jordan Tucker ended up transferring. Jordan Goldwire ended up playing um, 169, which is very close to the number that Jason guessed, which was 160. So Jason's gonna get this one because I guess two thirty. I good. had I had some wild and, ass one, didn't I? Donald had three twenty eight. Yeah, I did. Yep. <laughs> um, now here comes the the much more surprising one based on our oh, the Alex O'Connell Alex O'Connell one Alex yeah. O'Connell yeah. total minutes he ended up with 373 Donald wins the category because he had the highest guess at 144 oh Jason God. had 130 and I had 73 I really had no I had no dreams for Alex O'Connell this season so shouts to him for for just beating us entirely on our optimism for him uh, the 15th category, how many games will Justin Robinson appear in? Uh, he outdid all of our predictions. So Jason predicted 14. He's going to take it. Donald and I both said nine. Um, and he appeared in 17 games. So good good for Justin Robinson. Uh, and he had some nice appearances, too. He had, yeah, uh, he, did, he had a couple of good great. It, it wasn't all garbage, either. Yeah. It was like it was um, somewhere in the middle of the game. First half yeah. against Pitt, he was awesome. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So so shouts to him. And then and then the last category was how many hundred point games. So oh, thank God this year oh, we God. didn't have any any of us <laughs> guess like ten or anything. Jason actually I mean, nailed who it. Who would do that? Oh, that there, was me. There were only three. If if you don't guys, last night the, the, I went back and listened to big chunks of this episode from last year, and oh my goodness. Uh, the, amount of, the amount of stupidity that the three of us put out was incredible. But Donald had the best because he guessed that Duke would score 100 points 10 times last year. They only did it twice. They did it three times this year. Jason na- Jason nailed that one. I guessed two. Donald guessed four, which was very reasonable. So Jason got that last category. So in total, Jason and Donald both tied with five points in the predictions game, and I got seven. So I am the champion this year of the predi- of the stats prediction game. So congratulations to me. Thank you very much. Wait, um, wait hang on, hang on. Do, yeah. we, do we get a redraw, like a revote, something? <laughs> what do you want to know? <laughs> what do you want to know? I will say. I'd that like to revise week. my picks. I bet I ask me again. I bet I can get them all. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can get them right. I can get them right. <laughs> sure, 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 sure. So I feel a lot uh, better about say, my ability to predict the season right now. I will say <laughs> that last year you guys tied for the victory. So I have I have pulled back with you. Although I think Jason won the first year. Yes, um, he did. So so Jason's still ahead. Two to one to one in the all-time stats prediction game. Um, I, I do want to mention because I, I talked about how I listened to last year's season prediction recap. We the way that we were talking about the team a year ago was all right. So Grayson's gone, and um, and Luke Kennard is gone, and we're really excited to see how Frank Jackson develops as a sophomore. Uh, so nope, <laughs> so, great work, guys. Uh, the one other thing we talked about last year that by I the did way, wanna... by the way, crazy yeah. thought. The last time we saw Frank Jackson play is the last time Frank Jackson played. Wait, is that true? He, what do you he, mean? He, he sat out the entire season. Really? Yeah, he's not going to play at all for New Orleans this year. He was hurt huh. the whole year. Bummer. Stinks yeah. for him. Yeah, maybe right, he well, should. Stinks for him, but he made a million dollars. Yeah, that's true. I would have liked to make a million dollars this year. So you can, you know, you can sponsor the podcast. You can email us. Um, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that at the end. Um, there was one other thing we talked about at the end of last year's recap episode that was fun. We asked who will be Duke's next celebrated senior. And we had this conversation in the context of, oh, Grayson Allen's definitely leaving. Like he shouldn't come back. You know, he, all it's going to do is hurt him. Um, and we ended up having a, a mostly pretty fun um, celebration for Grayson Allen this year. I think we we talked a lot about how much we appreciate his contributions to the program, and he had a, a lovely senior night. So, in that episode, Jason predicted that Javin Delorier was the next big celebrated senior, and Donald and I both predicted that Antonio Vrankovic would be the next celebrated senior. So I'm feeling better um, about my pick. I'm feeling better about mine than yours. And and here's the thing, man. He's got Javin's got to like play more for that to end up being a thing because it's one thing to 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 like be a senior and get there and and graduate and everything but it's not like he's had that much court time um he was he was the the third big man this year and he's he may not start next year so i don't know we'll see i I don't think that donald donald's prediction and my prediction of of rankovich is gonna do us actually i'm looking forward to him developing the zubek effect and okay uh, (laughs) and breaking home a national championship next year and then We'll win. All right. Um, I will. I, I will. I will be so happy 
<laughs> you all with the prize if that happens. Yeah, we'll 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 see. So I, I don't think that I win anything other than pride for winning the stats game. And before we before we wrap with parting shots, uh, a couple things. First of all, we have the um, the DBR brackets challenge. So even though all of Jason and Donald and I can't win anymore because we stink. Um, some other folks were were not picking Duke all the way in the bracket challenge, and I, I looked back over uh, the game. It looks like there are a number of people who are still in it and who can still get points. More importantly, um, there aren't. I don't think there are scenarios where a particular set of games ends up happening and then we get like a whole bunch of winners together. It seems like everybody who can still accumulate points is all at like different. Uh, they're all at different like exact numbers based on like how many early round games they won. So it's not clear yet who's going to win the DBR bracket challenge. But if you're, you know, if if you got a few Final Four teams right, go in check, see how you did. Uh, as we mentioned at the beginning of the tournament, the winner of the DBR bracket challenge will be invited on to do a segment with us on the podcast sometime in the near future. So we'll we'll figure all that out next week after the tournament is over. And uh, so I want to close this episode of the show where I, I just want to remind everybody, it's been, what, three days since the season ended. You know, there have been no two games and we've gone on now uh, over over an hour in this show. So lots of things to talk about. But um, I want to pick our players of the year because we didn't we didn't do that on Sunday uh, and we did do it last year. And then we'll do parting shots if anybody has any. So I will start with Jason. Jason, who is your player of the year for Duke basketball 2017-2018? Um, I'm going with Marvin Bagley. I don't know. I, I don't know who you guys are going to pick, but I, I don't know that there's anyone else you could possibly pick. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I, I spoke about the fact that this guy, um, that there have been five, five total 30-15 games in Duke history, and he has four of them. 21 points per game, 11.1 rebounds per game. Um, he was absolutely dominant at times against some really good competition. So uh, not a difficult choice for me. I don't think it's that much of a competition. Marvin Bagley, I thought, was the player of the year. The, the greatest freshman season we've ever seen at Duke. Donald? You know, I'm going to go with leadership. I'm going to go with the guy who has been uh, really the rock of the team. He he helped lead us. You know, Grayson Allen was was that guy this year, and, you know, he gave so much to the program. And for that, my player of the year is Marvin Bagley III. <laughs> <laughs> that, was, that was impressive. I like that. I'm going to make it three for three. So last year we all picked Luke Kennard, and this year we're all picking Marvin Bagley. Uh, all I wrote in my notes about Marvin Bagley because I knew in my mind that Jason was going to, was going to do the stats rundown. All I wrote is we'll never see his like again. And now his watch is ended. If you, if you're a game of Thrones fan, you'll appreciate that. Uh, You won't see, you won't see a player like Marvin Bagley ever again in college basketball. The, The maturity of his offensive game is like, like you guys remember Jabari Parker in college. Marvin Bagley is like, way better than Jabari Parker was. And Jabari Parker, when he came, was amazing. So um, so congratulations to Marvin Bagley. Uh, among all the accolades that you have received, including a AP First Team All-American nod, uh, and all the accolades that you will be receiving in the future, you've got uh, 
DBR podcast 2018 player of the year under your belt. Um, the uh, the trophy is on its way, I guess, maybe. Are we, hey, I don't know hey, if we'll think, make think, think about this regarding Marvin Bagley. Um, the term second jump hadn't really been heard until Marvin Bagley came along. And we probably heard it and spoke it dozens and dozens of times on this podcast over the past year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's almost like it's almost like a new term was invented. A new aspect of measuring basketball was invented so that we could talk about how great Marvin Bagley was. I, I want to go to parting shots before we get out of here. Donald, what is your parting shot for this episode? Okay, guys. So the scene is a Red Sox-Cubs spring training game on Monday. Uh, and, and I don't know if you guys saw this. It was live on ESPN. And what they're doing during spring training, which is now over, uh, is they were interviewing people in the field. So for this game, they were interviewing Red Sox right fielder Mookie Betts. During the game, he's in right field. And while he's giving an answer to a question, a Cubs player just rockets one to right field. So mid-answer, Betts starts to run towards the ball and realizes there's no way he's catching this baseball. So he says to the guys in the booth while running, I ain't getting this one, boys. Um, the guys, <laughs> so everyone's cracking Donald, up in the booth. Donald, you can't, you can't really do justice to the inflection, so everyone needs to go watch the clip. Yes, it I will awesome. post it in the thread, but it, it's absolutely hilarious. The guys in the booth are cracking up. He's tracking the ball down, and one of the guys in the booth actually reminds Betts to hit the cutoff man while, while the Cubs <laughs> yeah. player is running into third base. It's really so, good. It just reminds me that opening day for Major League Baseball is tomorrow. And while my Tigers are expected to be one of the worst teams in baseball, it does not call my excitement for the dawn of a new beginning, the new season. But a hilarious moment in one of the final spring training games. Uh, I ain't getting this one, boys. That sums up the season sometimes. Really great one. Jason, your parting shot. So just very, very quickly, at the start of our podcast last week, or just a few days ago, I should say, I spoke the words and I said, I don't know why anyone would want to listen to this podcast because I knew we were about to spend a great deal of time talking about the end of Duke's season and the loss to Kansas. Um, And I said it sort of jokingly. I I didn't mean it seriously. Obviously, I am thrilled that a lot of you chose to listen to the podcast and I, I knew you would because you all have been wonderful, faithful fans. But I just wanted to say, I think it was really sweet. Guys, I'm sure you noticed the same thing. We were kind of flooded with emails (laughs) with people who wrote to us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com and said, hey, guys, I just wanted to let you know I love the podcast and I listened even though we lost. And I just thought it was great that, you know, you don't get that kind of feedback from the community all the time, immediate feedback. But the past couple of days, I mean, what we've gotten probably a half dozen, eight, maybe even 10 emails from people who say, we love the podcast. Thanks for what you're doing. You helped me deal with my grief. And and I listened. And I, yeah. so I just want to say back to all of you. Thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. It was really great. Actually, one of my one of my friends, Josh, texted me and said, Sam, let Jason know that I'm listening to the podcast just in case he didn't know um so yeah we 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 got a number of those notes and they were really nice i will echo from my parting shot uh donald's reminder that it is baseball season now it is the the annual way that i cope with duke losing in the tournament which of course happens more often than not 
is that as soon as the game ends, I say, well, and now it's baseball season. And then I watch the Washington Nationals begin their annual slog towards winning the NL East and then losing in the first round of the playoffs in dramatic fashion. And at that moment, I always say, and now it's college basketball season. So uh, here we are at the point of the year when I say, and now it is baseball season. Uh, go Nats. Uh, and and once again, um, I am your champion of the Stats Prediction Game 2018. I just want everyone to really you know appreciate that, let it sink in, because it, it, it means a lot to me, frankly, to beat such worthy competitors in Donald and Jason. But, but I did beat them fair and square this year. So don't forget, if you love the show, uh, to subscribe to the Duke Basketball Report podcast on iTunes or on Google Play or Stitcher or SoundCloud, wherever you get your shows. Um, leave us a five-star review because we love those and because it helps other people find the show. Uh, if you have any complaints that do not involve five-star reviews, you can feel free to email them to us at dbrpodcast at gmail.com. That's dbrpodcast at gmail.com. Um, like Jason said, we got a number of really nice notes this week that we really appreciated, and I think we responded to them all. So uh, if we didn't, um, then we're jerks, and I'm sorry. Um, any comments that you want to send us are welcome there, or you can always uh, comment on the threads that we post on the DBR forum. Um, we, we always post a thread for each episode of the podcast, so you can comment there. And uh, if you want to sponsor the show, like the fine gentlemen at Bird Campbell have been doing now for a few months, uh, you can send us an email to that same email address, dbrpodcast at gmail.com, and we'll get you set up with a sponsorship. So um, for Donald Wine and for Jason Evans, I am Sam Klein. This has been episode 116 of the Duke Basketball Report podcast. Duke Band, take us home. <laughs>